All right, welcome to the White Collar Crimes Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Horn, the podcast where we show you the only color that truly matters in our criminal justice system is green. Great to have you aboard, as always. Hope you are staying cool where you are at, because it's certainly not possible here in my area. It is, as the saying goes, hotter than a $2 pistol here. It has been in 90 degrees plus Fahrenheit, and some days this week may push 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I know some of you that listen to this operate on the Celsius system, so you may have to uh, translate that into, you know, the right number for you, but you get the point. It's uh, quite hot where we are here, and Really, and throughout most of the United States it is right now, and I saw something today, even a lot of Europe and the UK and everything are roasting as well, so, you know, it's July here and summer and just a hot, humid, miserable time of year. I'm certainly looking forward to the fall. I'm a fall person. It's definitely my favorite season, and that's the one I'm looking forward to coming around, and of course then, you know, Christmas and that time of year after that. Don't mind winter usually, except, you know, once in a while when it gets, I know we had some wind chills earlier this year back in January, February that were, you know, 20, 25 below. And, you know, that when it gets pretty dangerous like that, it's not too pleasant. But I certainly can handle winter a lot of times better than I can the heat and humidity that we're facing right now. It's uh, even reaching some dangerous levels. You know, if you get out and exert yourself too much, you can risk a heat stroke in some of that. And if you're in an area where that's happening at, uh, stay safe, stay hydrated. So, but you know, we've talked some a lot lately about a lot of various different types of uh, white collar offenders, and this is one case. If you're maybe my age or older, you might remember we're going back, you know, 20, 15, 20 years mainly uh, in this case. And this is a case some of you may have seen it. I believe it was also covered on American Greed. But this is the case of Samuel Israel III, and he was a former hedge fund manager of the Bayou Hedge Fund Group. Now, a hedge fund, I like to think of it as basically, it's like a mutual fund where you got all the money pooled in from investors and, you know, smart investors at the top make the investments to make more money. But a hedge fund, I think, is more of a mutual fund for elites from what I've seen. It's certainly not anything... You know, my wife and I have, you know, different types of investments, and we do have some in some mutual funds, but hedge fund is always something I've seen kind of like the Billionaire Boys Club. It's more for the the rich and the elites, and that's what he managed. And, again, they usually have the high earners and, you know, the big-time risk investments, but, you know, also the potential to make a lot of money. And he founded this Bayou Hedge Fund Group, and... You know, at the time, everybody thought, just like a lot of times when these companies seem to be doing well, that something good to jump onto and get onto. Now, as far as the background of Mr. Israel, he was born in 1959 to a Jewish family, uh, later attended Tulane University, although he did not graduate. And, you know, again, that's not that uncommon. You know, I can remember doing my white color crime studies at the University of Cincinnati back in grad school. And I was kind of surprised to learn that a whole lot of these guys, the majority of them actually, don't graduate high school. A lot of them have some college and attend at some level, but the majority of them actually don't uh, finish college. And that's not un- uncommon in the business world. You know, we've seen certainly with a lot of, you know, billionaire level uh, business people, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, 
Steve Jobs of Apple, Bill Gates, Microsoft, you know, on and on. Those guys are all college dropouts. And, you know, let's face it, you don't need a college degree to be successful in business. You know, there are a lot of professions where you do need one. And, you know, I know my job requires a college degree. And, you know, I've got uh, a niece that's a physician's assistant. Obviously, that's a position that's going to require a college degree. And there's a lot of them that do. But, you know, to be successful in business, you don't necessarily have to have a college degree. And he didn't. And he... uh you know, still managed to at least give the appearance that he was doing well and was successful. And he was the CEO of this fund, which actually was able to raise $450 million. So we're talking, you know, roughly about $50 million away from being half a billion that they were able to raise from various investors. But he misused these funds in a classic Ponzi scheme. And it seems like that's over and over again the most common type of scam that we see pulled off in the white-collar crime world. You know, we've done a podcast on Charles Ponzi, the man credited for this scheme and the founder of it. And, you know, the majority of these white-collar crimes most of the time do have some type of uh, pattern fashioned after a Ponzi scheme. And as we've said, it's you know, if you're a first-time listener, you're not really sure what that is. That's when, you know, somebody sets up a fraudulent investment. You get new investors to come in. You put up these phony numbers like you're just making a killing. Of course, you keep this money for yourself. And as long as you get new investors to come in, you're fine. Because if some of the early ones want to cash out, you have that money from the new investor. You can pay them and give the appearance that, you know, you're just giving them part of their profits and, you know just a normal, uh, legit business or normal, legitimate investment. But the problem with these, always what happens, and we'll see this later on, is once people figure out that something's not right or they begin demanding their money and people stop investing and putting their money in the pool, the money dries up and the uh, scam goes belly up. But that's a Ponzi scheme. And as we'll see, Mr. Israel ran the uh, Bayou Hedge Fund pretty much in that fashion. Because early on, they had some lackluster returns. So in order to keep the scam going and to not uh, make their investors a little nervous, a little worried, anything like that, to trigger a little panic, they actually set up a fake accounting firm to audit themselves. You know, just police ourselves here. Everything's fine. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to see. Move along. That's really what they did to give the uh, accountants and investors and people on the outside the you know, appearance that everything's okay. Hey, you know, our uh, this accounting firm here, which is not real or doesn't exist, they, uh, you know, or they're not legit, they looked into us and everything's fine. So, you know, keep that money coming. You have nothing to worry about. Maybe, you know, tell them it's just a little bit of a down period, but, you know, everything's going to be fine, to, you know, if they just ride the storm out. You know, and, and that is investing. You know, I know right now, if you have any kind of investing, you know, what that's like because right now almost every type of investment is suffering you know i mean if you have any kind of stocks or mutual funds or anything like that uh you know it's tough time right now and uh you know i think the real estate market is going to be taking some hits some as well soon so we're in some pretty scary times and you know when you invest you have that decision a lot of times to make do you pull out or do you ride the storm out and keep going you know i know when the may 8th or the uh the uh pandemic hit two years ago that uh you know triggered some people i know that to cash out all their stocks and investments and things like that in a panic you know now they may have regretted that later when things rebounded but 
you know, sometimes you just don't know, you know, uh, investing is, you know, kind of like the Kenny Rogers gambler song there, you know, you have to know when to hold them and you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. And that's certainly what, uh, what happens in this case. And that's what happens a lot of times in these Ponzi scams and how they uh, end up falling apart. But he managed to keep this going by, you know, starting the fake audit and, you know, this is around 1998 and, you know, they're telling everybody everything's fine. So people continue to put in a little bit and invest. And so he bought some time with the investors and continued to get them to, you know, pull their money into this and keep things going. But like I said, that always is almost the case. In these Ponzi schemes, the money runs out and, you know, the scheme will collapse eventually. And that is what happened by about 2005. You're talking about seven years later. By about 2005, the hedge fund was forced into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Now, after some lengthy legal proceedings, Israel was finally sentenced in 2008 to 20 years in federal prison. This is for some various uh, federal charges, financial crimes that he was involved in that had to do with the you know fraudulent hedge fund, accounting firm, everything like that that he set up through facing a variety of federal charges. He gets a 20-year prison sentence in 2008, which is a pretty good and pretty lengthy little prison sentence. Most of the time, these offenders, as we've said, don't get that long of a time. And, you know, if they get any at all, we've covered several cases on here where, you know, offenders, the you know, the people guilty of these crimes, don't do any jail time at all. You know, the W.C. Grace Mine Company in Montana, one of our early ones, you know, recommend if you're new, go back and listen to that episode. That's one where, despite spreading asbestos and destroying a mining town in Montana, the people behind that did not, I don't know that a single one ever spent a day in jail. So sometimes it happens. But 20 years is a decent uh, sentence for a white-collar crime, and that's exactly what he got in 2008. And he was also also ordered to forfeit about $300 million in assets that he had attained from scamming various investors. Pretty good little scam he had going. That's pretty good Ponzi scheme, actually. $300 million is not a lightweight one. You know, it's certainly not, you know, Bernie Madoff and the big time one there. But, you know, you're talking a third of a billion dollars roughly here and there. So that's, that's a pretty good little... Uh, scam that he was able to pull off and and scam people out of. And you know, it was always kind of strange. Again, people wondered why, just like so many of these other ones, because most of these white-collar criminals, even if they don't come from wealthy backgrounds, which some of them do, most of them come from at least a middle-class background where they didn't suffer growing up in poverty or, you know, the strain or stress that that brings in an upbringing, you know, and this certainly was a case with Israel. He didn't suffer any type of upbringing like that. He came from, you know, a fairly privileged background. So it was kind of puzzling to people why he scammed for more. But again, it always goes back to, you know, that old John D. Rockefeller quote. I always think of that, you know, when asked how much money is enough. One more dollar is what Rockefeller's answer was. And we saw that here with him. And he was able to scam and get as much as he wanted. He could have probably run this as a legitimate company, as a legitimate hedge fund, and made, you know, millions of dollars legitimately and lived a, you know, comfortable, wealthy life. You know, but that wasn't enough. He wanted it all. And he pushed and scammed till, you know, he was able to accumulate about $300 million off these, you know, honest investors. 
And he did this by inflating his own resume and financial history. And again, you're talking mainly late 90s, 2000s, you know, the smartphones, internet, social media, the speed at which information travels now was not quite then what it is now. So I, I kind of wonder if something like this will be as easy to pull off in the future, but it was easy to do then. And he was able to inflate his own resume and his own financial history and, you know, keep the investors coming in and keeping them investing. But his story doesn't end here. A lot of times they do, you know, a lot of these times once they go to prison, that's it. And, you know, that's where the podcast wraps up. But that's not the case on here. On April 14th, 2008, as I said, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Now, they gave him a reporting date of June 9th, 2008. And that's, you know, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, wealth and privilege and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it could be, but I can tell you it's not entirely uncommon. I've seen it in my years of working in the criminal justice system. I've seen plenty of just common street criminals sometimes be allowed a short time to, you know, get affairs in order before they report to jail or prison and you know, it, it's not that unheard of. You know, it's again at the judge's discretion. It's not something they have to grant an offender. That's completely up to the judge's call. Of course, they're going to take into account, you know, if that person's a flight risk or if they're a danger to the community or, or something like that. But, uh, you know, we will see how that kind of works out, you know, because you'll see in a little bit that was probably not a wise move by the judge because on June 9th, 2008, he did fail to report to prison as he was ordered you know so he was given you know a couple months here nearly to get his affairs in order say his goodbyes and then report to prison and he failed to do that so this starts off on a big time uh you know manhunt the feds are looking for this guy because at this point he's considered a fugitive and they were able to track down his abandoned suv near the bear mountain bridge in new york And on the hood, written in dust, were the words, suicide is painless. Now, if you're older, you might recognize that term because that is what the theme song from MASH was called. And I did not know that till actually just a few years ago growing up. I wasn't a huge fan of that show. My grandmother and mom watched it some, and I caught it here and there. And I had some uncles, I think, that liked the show. I've seen it. It was, you know, it was a good show. I wasn't a huge fan, but I certainly, you know, remember the theme song. It was memorable. And it wasn't until really just a few years back I found out that's what the name of that song is. Suicide is Painless. And uh, that was what he left on his hood written in the dust. But police immediately suspected this was a faked suicide. And he was later tracked by nearby down in a Massachusetts campground. They found him on July 2nd, 2008. So he was able to stay on the lam and stay on the run for about three weeks. And his girlfriend was later arrested and she was also charged with aiding and abetting in his escape because that is what it's considered. You know, when you see somebody that's got a conviction for escape on their record, it, in a case like this, it's that's what this is. It's not always just where they try to break out of jail or prison. That is, you know, an escape as well. But when somebody is ordered by the judge and by the court, to report to jail or prison by a certain date and time, and they fail to do so at that point, it is considered an escape, and that's what they are criminally charged with. And that's what he was charged with as well. And as I said before, he'd already been given 20 years, and he, on top of that, was given an additional three years in prison for this escape escape attempt. And I've seen 
that happened when I was a working at the county jail as a corrections officer at the sheriff's office back in the day. I saw a couple guys make some pretty serious escape attempts, and both of them got five years added on top of the sentences they got. Now, both of them had gotten life sentences, and, you know, they were looking at, you know, life sentences anyway, so I guess they felt it wasn't anything to take the risk and go for it. Now, as I've said on this show before, I don't know, as in other states, but in Illinois, when you go to prison, if you had an escape attempt in the county jail, a serious one like that, you have an X on the back of your jumpsuit for the rest of the time you're around. So the correction staff know you are a serious escape attempt and you have, and you are an escape risk. You've tried it before. So he gets him an extra three years on top of the 20 that he had already gotten. And his girlfriend somehow managed to get only three years of probation out of this. I'm guessing she must not have had a real serious criminal record or anything. Her name was Deborah Ryan. Not a lot is really known about her, but she must not have had too serious of a record or must not have been involved in any of his financial crimes, you know, because she only receives about three years in prison. Now, he was last reported to be serving his sentence at the Butner Low Federal Prison in North Carolina. Now, that earned both of them, though, some, you know, national... Uh, some time in the national spotlight on this. Not only has this case been featured on American Greed, but these two were also on America's Most Wanted for this three weeks while he was on the lam. So I guess it got him, you know, a little bit of some uh, celebrity status or something like that. Now, it's said his earliest release will likely be possible around September of 2027 or so. So you're talking, you know, a little over five years before he gets out. And, you know, he's in his early 60s right now, so it's certainly possible he's going to live to see the outside world again and be released. And now he may not be released, and then I don't know if that's the earliest he's eligible, and, you know, you never know how that's going to go. But if he's not released then, he probably will be released sometime soon after that. So he is going to have the opportunity, most likely, to offend again. We don't know how, where, or when, but... He is going to have that opportunity most likely someday. Now, like I said, technology has changed a lot of things from the late 90s when he was really in his heyday putting this on. May not be as easy easy for him to do that now, but in some ways, some types of white-collar crimes are now easier to commit because of uh, technology. You know, as I said before, cybercrime and white-collar crime are starting to blur, really, in this day and age that we're in. It's becoming so easy to commit new types of white-collar offenses. You know, technology has made some types of offenses that were easy to do in the past more difficult now, but that doesn't mean criminals don't get creative and innovative and find new ways to do things. So who knows? We'll have to wait and see if he's how creative he is. If he wants to go that route again, he, uh, he certainly may decide to do that. But the main thing is, you know, we you got to watch out for on, when you got a hedge fund investment or if you're out there and you invest in any type of hedge funds or anything like that, you know, you got to look out on that old adage. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And if you have something making an unbelievable amount of money hand over fist and it just doesn't quite add up or make sense, you know, good idea to question that and maybe, uh, you know, take your money out or stop putting money in until you find more out because this is how they operate. And you know, watch out if you've got friends or family involved in this. As I always say at the end of each episode, and I'm saying it here, you know, watch out for each other on these scams because they're certainly out there and people are certainly trying to pull 
many of these over us any chance they get. So, well, we certainly did appreciate you tuning in to this one. And we've got a real interesting case from a white-collar offender that was probably the largest white-collar offender ever who was over about 600 pounds, if I'm not mistaken, going to uh, cover this case coming up. This was a suggestion of my wife, so I'm looking forward to bringing that one next week. So, again, we do thank you for tuning in to this one. If you do have an idea, this is my wife did, you can send me an idea for a show if you think there's a good idea to cover one. You can contact me on the Anchor FM page. You know, I've had people who listen to this podcast do that, and some have even been guests on there. And if you want to be a guest on this podcast, contact me. You are certainly welcome to. You can also email me ideas. My email is ryanhornvt at gmail.com. As I always say, too, if you're out there and you need a good voiceover service, I can provide that as well. Check out my website, ryan-horn.com, or my Facebook page, Ryan Horn Voice Talent. Just finished an audio book, actually. And, uh, you know, check out our Facebook page for this show, for this podcast, White Collar Crimes. Always glad to have you uh, check that out, too. So, you know, be sure and help support us. You know, we appreciate you when you do tune in. Um, as I always say, too, check out your local pet shelter. Adopt your next best friend. They're waiting for you right there. We've done it, wife and I have. You know, three dogs and two cats, and every one of them a rescue from a local shelter. And it's been the best uh, friends we could have and bring into our lives. And that's the joy, I guarantee you, that, that they will bring you. So, again, thanks for tuning in. And like I said, stay cool, stay hydrated out there if it's really hot where you're at. And we look forward to seeing you here again next week. God bless and take care, everybody.